Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today we are continuing our study, The God Who Loves, exploring the doctrine of the Trinity. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and would love to have you join us over there. Well, welcome folks. Welcome to part three of The God Who Loves. Uh, it's really good to be getting into the, this study of the Trinity again. Uh, as I always say, there's a handout in the description which should be helpful to help you follow along with this. Uh, as, also, as I say, if you have any comments or questions, do please put them in the live chat or put your hands up and at the end we can do some questions, if there is any. Uh, if, you do, if you don't have a Bible already, please do grab one because we are going to be really getting into the Bible today, We're really going to be digging into it. So that would be great. And uh, as I say, it's fantastic to have you with us if you're here or if you're watching on YouTube. It's great to have you with us. So, we've seen already in part one about uh, theology proper, how we need to understand God. Last week, we looked at defining what the Trinity actually is, so giving a definition to the Word. This week is probably one of my favorite parts because we're actually going to be looking at what the Bible has to say. Uh, Where do we see the Trinity in the Bible? Is it a biblical doctrine? Because it's all well and good giving a definition of it, but unless it's biblical, we don't need to give it any attention. So the first thing that we might think, which many people have thought, where is the Trinity in the Bible? Where is the word Trinity in the Bible? I've heard multiple people uh, say this, uh, as though that's the word we need to look for. And if we can't find that word, we've got a problem. Is that a problem? I mean, do we think that unless the word's there, we have an issue? And so the question we have really is how, if God has revealed this, how has he revealed it? How has he revealed himself? And so well, that's what we need to explore today. How has God revealed himself? How do we know he's a trinity? Now, a really important thing to say is that one thing we need to realize is how God reveals anything about himself. How do we know anything about God? Well, because he has done something in action. God reveals himself through actions. So, for instance, How do we know we have a God who is a creator? Because he created. How do we know that we have a God who can communicate? Because he has communicated to us. How do we know that we have a God who is a savior? Because he has saved us. In the same way, how do we know that God is uh, self-sustaining, for instance? Let's take that attribute specifically. He's self-sustaining. Well, he showed it quite vividly to Moses by appearing in a bush that doesn't burn up. He doesn't just say, oh, I'm self-sustaining. He shows it in action. God always reveals himself in action. Even something as fundamental as the Messiah. There's no point in the Old Testament where God just turns and says, there is going to be a Messiah. Instead, he sets up a king, the righteous king, and and the expectation builds from there. He reveals his plan and who he is through action, not just through speaking. And so in the same way, the Trinity isn't just revealed in God saying, I am a trinity, and then there's kind of an extended place in the New Testament where it lays out uh, a creed of how we understand the trinity correctly. That's not how God reveals himself. He's revealed himself in deed, not in word. He's revealed that he's a trinity by the Son becoming incarnate in Jesus and by the pouring out of the Spirit. That can only happen if God is trinity. And so God has revealed that he's a trinity by acting as a trinity. So this is really important to get. The trinity is not revealed in the New Testament. 
the Trinity is revealed before we get to the New Testament. The, the New Testament is reflecting on the fact that the Trinity has been revealed. The Old Testament was written before it was revealed. The New Testament was written after it was revealed. The, the New Testament is itself a Trinitarian document. You cannot make sense of the New Testament unless God is Trinity. So, you know, if you're really looking for a place to see that where, you know, where the Trinity is, is revealed, where is the Trinity first introduced in the Bible? Well, there's a place we can go to. If you open your Bibles up and find Malachi and also find Matthew, in between those two books, you should have a page that says the New Testament on it. You can think of this as your Trinity page. This is where the Trinity is revealed. Uh, as I say, in the incarnation of the Son and the outpouring of the Spirit. The New Testament is simply a reflection on the doctrine of the Trinity. It's a reflection on the fact that God has done something Trinitarian. And so, as I say, this is why the New Testament is full of reflections on it without ever giving kind of a, uh, a sit down and explain every jot and tittle of it. You know, the, the, the New Testament is not what we call a systematic theology. So, I have an example here. This, this is a systematic theology. This is a very good one as well. They are big books with lots of words in, and you'll find on every page tons of biblical references. Because what we do is we take lots of verses from the Bible, we take it all, and we draw it all together, and we say, what does the Bible teach about this topic? So, for instance, our view on salvation. There are places where, for instance, in the book of Romans, Paul sits down and gives a paragraph explaining salvation. But there's never a point where you can just go and find the whole doctrine explained and explored. And so what we do is we draw it all together and we say, what does the Bible teach about sin? And you have verses from all these different books. Because that's how the Bible works. It's not a systematic theology. It's written by worshippers, not by systematizers. So we shouldn't expect that we sit down and find everything laid out for us clearly. In fact, the Bible is, is what gives us the basis for our systems. It's not the system itself. So we have to have a consistent system because we have the Bible. So I've got a quote here. It's quite lengthy, but uh, just bear with. So it's from the person I've already referenced once, Herman Barvink. Fantastic quote. And just bear in mind that the word dogmatics can also mean systematic theology. So he says this, Holy Scripture is not dogmatics. It contains all the knowledge of God we need, but not in the form of dogmatic formulations. The truth has been deposited in Scripture as the fruit of revelation and inspiration in a language that is the immediate expression of life and therefore always remains fresh and original but it has not yet become the object of reflection and has not yet gone through the thinking consciousness of the believer. Here and there, for example, in the letter to the Romans, there may be the beginning of dogmatic development, but it is no more than a beginning. The period of revelation had to be closed before that of dogmatic reproduction could start. Then listen to this. Scripture is a gold mine. It is the church that extracts the gold, put its stamp on it, and converts it into general currency. So there's a really good way of thinking about it there. Scripture is like the gold mine, and our job as people who read the Bible, who love God, is to go into that gold mine and mine it and, and form it into currency, to form it into a system. So I think that's a really helpful way to think about it. 
as I say, this is how we deal with all doctrines, whether it be the atonement, sin, heaven and hell, you know, Christian living. These all, comes, uh, all, all come from us going into the gold mine, digging it out and getting some um, answers. So that's really important to understand. That's how God reveals himself in action. He's revealed himself by the Son becoming incarnate and the Spirit being poured out. That's how we know that God is Trinity. The New Testament itself is a Trinitarian document. But we might be thinking then, okay, well, what about the Old Testament? Fair enough. There might be kind of the elephant in the room when you talk about the Trinity. Where is it in the Old Testament? Well, as I say, God revealed himself progressively. You know, he didn't just do it all at once. So, for instance, Moses knew more than Noah, and David knew more than Moses, and Malachi, right at the end of the Old Testament, knew more than all three. And then you get to Paul, and he knows more than all of them, because God reveals himself in stages. It's progressive. It's not all at once. The Bible is the finished product, and we can often think in our head that everyone throughout the ages has had as much knowledge as us. It's not true. We have the finished product. And, uh, and so there's kind of two images which I think are really helpful uh, to think about this. One of them is that, the tr- is that we have revelation is like an acorn. So God revealing himself is like an acorn. So if you compare an acorn and an oak tree, you can see these are two very different things. One has, you know, one is fully developed, one is clearly, it's, 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 it's massive and has all these different things coming off it. One is tiny, you can fit multiple on the palm of your hand. And yet all the information of the oak tree is found in that acorn, just in a kind of a concealed form. You don't necessarily know how that's going to grow into that. But once you see the kind of the stages, you can see how that feeds into that. It grows into a shoot, and then it gets bigger from there. And so in the same way, we can think of it in the same way. The Old Testament has kind of the seed form, the acorn, that grows into the huge oak tree. Another analogy which B.B. Warfield uses is that uh, the Old Testament is like a very richly furnished but dimly lit chamber. It has everything in it, but you just can't really see much. When the New Testament comes, it's like it turns on the lights. There's nothing new added to the chamber, but now you can see what was there the whole time. And so when we're talking about the Trinity, we can say, you know, in light of the fact that we now know what the oak tree looks like, in light of the fact that we now have the lights on in the chamber, what can we see? Bearing in mind that God hadn't revealed that part of himself yet, but we do know there's something there. So one thing that we see in the Old Testament, which is um, really big in, in this topic, is that in the Old Testament, there is this kind of interrelationship within God. He talks to himself, in himself. He sends mediators. So the, there's one particular character that comes up again and again called the angel of Yahweh or the angel of the Lord. And he, and he speaks as though he's God. You also have God talking within God. So a classic example, Genesis 19 at Sodom and Gomorrah, it says, Then Yahweh rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. So you have Yahweh on earth, Yahweh in heaven, raining down fire from Yahweh. It's kind of an interrelationship. And and actually that's a really significant point because it's led even a, a Jewish scholar at a prestigious Jewish university in America to say that Jews shouldn't be suspicious of the doctrine of the Trinity Uh, as though it wasn't real monotheism, because it actually makes sense of a lot of these Old Testament passages. 
And as I say, you also find this when it talks about the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord, when it talks about the spirit of the Lord, you kind of get this sense which God is talking about a different person, yet equal with himself, they're both God. So we have that, but we also see promises in the Old Testament that God himself will come down to earth. Now obviously for us, we know that Jesus came, and so that makes sense. But that must have been quite confusing for them because God is the one who fills the heavens. God is the one who is everywhere at once. How can he be localized in a place on earth? And so places like Zechariah 14, for instance, are a really clear promise about that. And so by the time you get to Jesus' time, there was this real anticipation that God was going to come. So that, they're two really significant points, and we can see those in the Old Testament now because we have the benefit of the New Testament. But as I say... With that said, the, um, the purpose of the Old Testament is not to reveal the Trinity. That isn't what God was trying to do. In fact, without the incarnation or the pouring out of the Spirit, you wouldn't really have any kind of concrete uh, terms to talk about the Trinity. It would be quite abstract. But as I say, God reveals himself, has revealed himself in action. So, uh, it's there. God has put light on it now, but it wasn't the intention of the Old Testament to um, to reveal it. It needed God to act. So, as I say, that's the Trinity in the Old Testament. But then the, the big question is, okay, fair enough. We know it was there now in the Old because we have the New, but where is it in the New? What is there in the, in the, in the Bible that teaches us about the Trinity? And so I just want to give us a recap quickly from last week. Last week we saw there were three points that were given to understand the Trinity. That there is one God that there are three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is each God, and that the Father and the Son and the Spirit is each a distinct person. Now, you might remember me last week saying we're going to um, go through all of these and kind of go through a biblical lens. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to uh, unpack each of these. So, as I say, we need a Bible because we're going to do a deep dive now. So the first thing, there is one God. Now, this is a foundational biblical truth, as I'm sure we all know, that the world of the Bible is a world with many, many gods, and yet Israel proclaims, the Bible proclaims, there is one God. And it's kind of most summed up in what's called the Shema, which is a, a verse in Deuteronomy. Here, O Israel, Yahweh our God, Yahweh is one. And it's called the, the Shema prayer, as I say. And so the Shema was prayed regularly, and it's a real reminder it's not, just, it's not just there is you know, many gods, but we only worship one. It's no, 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 there is one God. This is absolute monotheism. There is one God who we worship. And uh, just an important point to make is that we might be familiar with this as though it says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right, so this word, Yahweh, is that in Hebrew we only have these letters. We don't actually know how it's pronounced. Now, because we, we lost the pronunciation, because the Jews never said it, because out of reverence for God's name, they didn't want to say it, so they replaced it with the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord. And so when it was translated into Greek, in the Greek Old Testament, they didn't try and translate it. They translated it, the Greek word kurios, which means Lord. So in all the places where it would say Yahweh, it now said Lord. So it went from Yahweh to kurios to, in our English translations, Lord. And so in our English translations, now we read it as, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's significant. It's going to come up again later. But the point is that they regularly prayed this, the Lord our God is one. And just one other thing to say is, 
The Hebrew word for one here is the word echad. Now, it's just worth saying, some people use this verse to say, there you go, Trinity's not there because God is one. But it's, it's worth pointing out, the word one doesn't simply mean an absolute um, unitary unit. So in Genesis 2, when it says, and the two became one flesh, the word used there is, is achad, they became one flesh. No one's saying that Adam and Eve became one person. Uh, another example would be that when the tabernacle's being completed, it says all the parts were put together and the tabernacle was echad, it was one. So anyway, just two important points to make. God is one, there is only one God. Another really important place where this is described is a place in the Bible in Isaiah, chapters 40 to 49. And this section is often called the trial of the false gods because it's a place where Yahweh comes to Israel as a judge in a, in a courtroom kind of setting and says, these gods that you've gone after are false gods. They aren't real gods. And he kind of um, subjects them to trials. So one of the things that the false gods can't do is tell the future, whereas the real God can because he made the future. And, and so in Isaiah 43, 10, and we see this verse repeated lots of times, it says, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. So it makes it absolutely clear in these chapters, God does not share his majesty. There is one God. Even these false gods, they're not smaller gods, they're not lesser gods. They're not even existent. They, they can't tell the future because they don't exist, is one of the things that it says in Isaiah. So we have this, as I say, absolutely stamped, all over the Old Testament, there is one God. So that's the first point. The second point is that each person is God. Now this is where it starts to get interesting because we can only make this claim once we have the New Testament. So the first person, the Father, the Father is God. Now this isn't really disputed. Anyone who reads the New Testament can tell you that the Father is God. That's Right, you know, think about all the times that Paul says, God our Father, or Jesus teaches us to pray to our Father in heaven. It's made pretty clear that the Father is God. And as I say, there's not really any dispute with that. There is some errors on understanding that, though. So one error that I raised last week was the error of Mormonism, where they say that the Father is God, but he's a, a separate God. So they have three gods. In fact, the Father used to be a man, but through obedience to the law, he became a god and now lives on the planet Kolob, which is genuine Mormon doctrine. But that's one error. The other error is one known as Marcionism. So this was a very, very early church heresy, which taught effectively that the father is a brutal, capricious, evil god, the one who created the world. And this is the one that Israel constantly struggles with in the Old Testament because he's just mean to them. And so Jesus comes to reveal a nicer God. Um, and so Marcion, the guy who came up with this, cut out the Old Testament, cut out huge parts of the New Testament, and only wanted what really revealed the true God of love, not the horrible, capricious Father. So they're two errors, but as I say, it's not, not disputed the Father is God. The second point the Son is God. Now this is where it gets interesting. This is where it, the debate really become, comes alive. Now, 
I think there are three ways that the Bible reveals to us that the Son is God. First place is that there's plenty of times where he gets called God. The second place is that there are lots of times in the New Testament where they quote passages about God in the Old Testament but apply them to Jesus. And the third point place is that sometimes Jesus acts and does the things which only God can do. Now these are, are really, um, they're, they're different, obviously they give a different dimension, but what I particularly love about these two is that people like the Jehovah's Witnesses take all the places in the New Testament where he's called God and just change it, and they think they've done it. So for instance, the classic one is uh, the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1, where it says, here we go, in the beginning the word was, and the word was with God, and the word was a God. And they think, there we go, we've fixed it, the son isn't God, he's a lesser God. And there's plenty of other places where they just translate it wrong. So they think they've got away with it, but what they don't realize is we've got two other points. So the first one, he's called God. This one is quite straightforward. So John 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 2 Peter 2, 1 verse 1 says, Our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13 says the same thing, Our God and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Uh, Romans 9 verse 5, The Messiah who is God over all. Colossians 2 verse 9, In him the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And John 20 verse 28, Thomas the disciple stands before Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. And Jesus doesn't rebuke him. Now earlier I said obviously that uh, Yahweh was translated as Lord, and there are also plenty of places where in the New Testament they call Jesus Lord, knowing full well what, it, what comes with it. Now, this is only a brief selection of verses, which you are more than welcome to go check out yourself, and there are a whole, a whole load more that we could add to it, but these ones are all really obvious places where Jesus is straight up just called God. The second area, though, is uh, a bit more interesting. The second area is where Jesus is quoted as God from the Old Testament. So let's, let's turn to some places in particular. So the first place, let's go to Revelation chapter 1. The book of Revelation has a very, very, very high view of Jesus. And we're going to see this book a few times before we finish this tonight. But in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus stands before John and we see some very interesting descriptions. So, in verse 13, it says, And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a gold sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were like white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished, furnished, uh, burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. Now, that's particularly interesting because... The whole, I saw one like a son of man, that comes from Daniel 7. So in Daniel 7, Daniel sees a vision. First he sees God on the throne, says, I saw the Ancient of Days. And then he says, books are opened. And then he saw one like a son of man. Now we all know that the son of man is Jesus. But what John then does is after he says, I see one like a son of man, he then applies the descriptions that Daniel gives about the Ancient of Days. So John is kind of drawing these two people together the Son of Man is the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is God. So that's, that's a kind of a subtle place. So as I say, do go check out Daniel 7 
but that's one place. So we're going to kind of get more intense as we go through. The second place is 2 Peter 3, 15. We're probably all quite familiar with this verse. Uh, In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being ready to give a defense uh, for the hope that you have. Well, in Isaiah 8, verse 13, Yahweh is the one whom you are to set apart as holy in your hearts. Now, Peter's uh, verse in Greek is an exact copy of Isaiah 8.13 in the Greek Old Testament. So Peter is taking an Isaiah, Isaiah's quote about God and applying it to Jesus. Uh, next we have uh, Philippians 2.10. Now this one's really interesting. We're probably all quite familiar with this verse in Philippians where it says, uh, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every uh, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Well, where's he got that from? He's got it from Isaiah 45. So Isaiah 45, verses 22 to 23 says this, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other... By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. So Paul just takes a verse about the promise that God gives that every knee will bow to him, and says about Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess. Another one we have is Hebrews 1. Now I'm not going to read all this just because I'm aware of time, but in Hebrews 1 he says, Of the Son he says... And then quote Psalm 45, where it says, Your throne, O God. Um, and then in the very next verse, he quotes Psalm 102. In the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth. And he applies these to Jesus. And it's very clear that he's talking about the Son. He never goes off and starts talking about the Father, specifically calling him God. And the last place, this is, this is one of my favorite. I'm going to spend a bit of time on this one, just because I love it so much. Ephesians 4. If we could all open Ephesians 4. This is a passage which sometimes confuses people a little bit, but I want us to see that Paul is doing something genius here. So he's talking about the gifts in the church in Ephesians 4 verse 7, and he says, Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? So, so what Paul is saying is Christ ascended, we can all agree on that, he ascended, and as he went up, he poured out gifts on everyone, we see that in Acts 2, he has poured out the Spirit on us, but then Paul quotes from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. Now Psalm 68 verse 18, what, what he quotes, is about God. What Paul is saying is, let's think about this, if God ascends... He's got to first come down. So notice, what in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended? If God, who's in heaven, is going to ascend to heaven, he must have first come down from heaven. You see see what's going on there? And so he's applying a verse about God and saying, we know how God has ascended because first God descended in the person of Jesus. And then God ascended and gave us gifts. So it's a, it's a really subtle but very, very clever way that Paul is saying, this person who's poured out gifts on us, this is God. 
He's, he's not just changing the psalm to fit his own thing, uh, to fit his own uh, theory. He's making a very good application of it. That's how God ascended. First, he descended. So they're, they're the, the points on, on the quoting of the Old Testament. Um, there are more, as I say, but we're not going to look at them all. And the third one, and I'm aware of time, so I'll probably need to speed up a bit. The third way that Jesus is uh, seen as God is that he acts as God. He does things only God can do. So he says to the Jews in John 8:58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Takes God's name, I am. Grammatically, it doesn't make any sense. Otherwise, he should have said, I have been. But he doesn't, he says, I am. And then in the very next verse, it says, they picked up stones to throw him, uh, to, to stone him, because he was calling himself God. So they knew what he was saying. A second place, uh, in Mark 2, we have the story of the friends carrying their uh, disabled friend down through the roof and Jesus heals them and Jesus forgives his sins. Now the religious leaders at the time know that only God can forgive sins and so they rightly say he is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus' reply, the son of man has authority to forgive sins. He's doing what only God can do. Another one we see, This one is particularly uh, a big deal because as we've already seen in Isaiah, God will not accept anyone else being worshipped. When Jesus has resurrected, the disciples come to him and they worship him. Now I want to add two more things from from the book of Revelation for this. In Revelation chapter 5, we see the same thing. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. We have all creatures on the earth, under the earth, in the the heavens, worshiping the lamb. Then in Revelation 22, we see John bows down to worship an angel and the angel rebukes him and says, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant. Worship God. So it's fine for everyone to be worshiping the lamb, but it's not fine to worship anyone except for God. Put two and two together, Jesus is being called God. He's being worshipped as God. And lastly in this section, um, this is a, a brilliant one. Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now we often miss what Jesus is saying there, but the original Sabbath command in Exodus 20, it is the Lord's Sabbath. It's his day. So he's the only one who has any authority to say how it changes or, or what to do on it. And Jesus comes along and he says, I am Lord of the Sabbath. Who's Lord of the Sabbath? God is. So as I say, this is a way that we see Jesus doing what only God can do. So what we're seeing here is that there are this diverse ways and clever ways that the New Testament all point to Jesus as being God. And so it's not surprising that Paul finds a way to uh, fit in the Shema, uh, if we go to the next one, he fits Jesus into the Shema, that prayer we saw. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says this, there is one God, the Father, from whom all, thi- all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So he fits Jesus in there in the Shema. He sees them as sitting in there. The third point in this, in this section is that the Spirit is God. Now, again, this one isn't really up, to, uh, up for debate like the Father. What's up for debate with this uh, statement is that some people don't see the Spirit as a person, but as just a force or an energy. So the Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, would say it's not the Holy Spirit, it's 
Holy Spirit, like God's energy. And God sent energy into them. God spent Holy Spirit into them. So is it holy energy or the Holy Spirit? Is it a person? Well, the Spirit is described as a person. We see the Spirit, uh, uh, he can be grieved. He has personal pronouns in John 15. He speaks. He knows things. These are all things that only a person can do. Energy, electricity, cannot know things. It cannot have personal pronouns. Electricity can't be grieved, but God's Spirit can. It's a person. So we see here, just this very brief overview, that all three of the persons are God. But then finally we see that each person is distinct. They're not all just one, you know, it's not H2O that appears in three different ways. We saw last week about Jesus' baptism, and we saw Jesus praying to the Father. They have distinct things, uh, distinct, distinct functions. But the other point to bear in mind is that we see these distinct ministries play out in the New Testament. So the Father, for instance, is the sender. He is the one who commands. He's the one who uh, gives the instruction. The Son is the one who acts on it, the one who uh, does what the Father commands, and the Spirit is the one who uh, applies that, who, who makes it real, who, who makes it subjective. So we see this in creation, in uh, redemption, in glorification. Um, so Romans 8, for instance, if we just turn to Romans 8, we can see this really clearly. Um, towards the end of the chapter, So if we read verse 27 of of Romans 8, and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit stands in the gap between us and God. But then in verse 32, uh, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So just a few verses we're seeing there. The Spirit's job, interceding for us. The Father is the one who gave up his Son, and the Son is the one who died for us. So we see all kind of three ministries there, all in action. The Father sends, the Son does, the Spirit seals and applies. Uh, Because of time, I'm not going to read through it, but in Acts 2, we see something else, a brilliant expression in just one verse. Uh, In Acts 2, we see it says, the Father has given Jesus the promised Spirit, and now he has poured it out on us. So the Father has promised the Spirit, Jesus has done the work and received the Spirit, and now he pours out the Spirit, and in Acts 2 we see the Spirit going out and drawing people in. It's a brilliant expression of it. So as we've gone through those three points now, we've seen there is only one God, a clear biblical truth. We've seen that Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, you know, obviously putting particular attention on the Son, because Jesus' deity is one of the things that is most debated. Even people who are in Orthodox Christian uh, uh, groups have, have made comments denying it before. So there was a particular fallout in the Baptist Union, I think in the 80s, where someone said, I can't deny that God was active through Jesus, but I don't think Jesus was God. And I think they were, I think they were one of the senior leaders. So this is not some new topic or just for the cults, uh, but it is something that we need to talk about. So we've seen that, and then we've seen that all three of the persons are distinct all really clear and really strong biblical truths. So I just want to finish by giving an analogy for how we get this doctrine of the Trinity. Now, as I say, the scriptures are like a gold mine. We just have all the gold there laid for us, and we have to mine it. And so an analogy I think is helpful for why we shouldn't worry that the word Trinity isn't there, that the specific terms aren't used. 
Think of it like this. If I gave you a recipe, didn't tell you what it was for, but it included eggs, flour, butter, sugar, milk, I think, and it gave you the exact timings, when you mix things together, when you put it in the oven, how long you leave it in the oven for, if you do all those instructions, you will end up with a cake. You're not going to put all those things together and end up with a roast chicken, for instance. And so in the same way, uh, but at the same time, if you were to ignore one of those instructions, you would end up with something that looks quite grotesque. So let's say you missed the bit where it says put it in the oven, and then you're looking at this pile of goo, and you say, well, this can't be what you intended. Or you say, this is what the recipe made. And you say, well, no, because you ignored the oven part. In the same way, the Bible gives us lots of things, to, like we just said, the Father is God, there is one God, the Spirit is distinct. All these kind of places, we get different things, and what we have to do is we have to follow the recipe. We have to not ignore any line, follow it all, and when you put them in the oven, you get a cake. When you put all these things together, you get the Trinity. The Trinity is the only way to understand everything that the Bible has to teach us. So some people might not, might not like the word Trinity, that's fine, but the truth behind it is absolutely essential. So we're going to finish there tonight. Next week we're going to look at the practical implications of this. It's a very exciting part. So I uh, hope to see you then, and thanks very much for joining us. Cheers, guys.